Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll. We didn't have the luxury of, well, I only listen to punk. Or like, I only listen to to this kind of music. We just wanted to hear everything that was new sounding to us and that was different to what we had grown up listening to. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. Welcome to Curious Creatures this evening. Um, I'm down in uh, Bordeaux, not in Berlin. Lol, where are you? Uh, I'm still here in Los Angeles. And we have a guest is over from uh, North Carolina. Yeah, in Chapel Hill. And uh, from the band Super Chunk, Mac McCann. So, um, have you always lived out there, Mac, in in uh, Chapel Hill? Yeah, well, uh, I was born in South Florida and and lived there near the beach uh, till I was thirteen, and then my family moved here to North Carolina to Durham, which is just about eight miles from Chapel Hill. Right. And so then I lived in Durham until I went to college in New York. Um, and Durham is kind of in the middle of the state. So we're about two hours from the coast and two hours from the mountains. Oh, um, it's nice. Uh, but, yeah. you know, growing up in in the south and um, even though it's a pretty, um, as far as the south goes, it's pretty cosmopolitan because there's a bunch of universities here and things like that. Right. But to go see to go see bands when we were growing up, um, especially English bands, we would usually have to go to. Uh, Washington D.C. or Atlanta because right. bands would often skip here. More bands come here now, but um, right, you know, like for instance, to see Susie and the Banshees, we drove to drove to D.C., which is about five hours. Yeah, that's just, that's longer than we probably drove to get to the gig. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it is funny because as you both know, having been over here many times or having lived here, like you, Lol. Uh, driving five hours in the States is, is, is nothing really because right. that's just how far <laughs> stuff is, you know? That's right. That's, <laughs> um, right. Um, that's when we looked at the itinerary and it said, we're driving tomorrow uh, and the next day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because we drive all day and then you'd have lunch somewhere and then you'd drive and then we'd pull into a motel in the early days. And then yeah. still we still hadn't got there. 
I mean, if we were civilized, we'd we'd have a high speed train that could take us to DC in like two hours, but that that yeah. hasn't happened yet. So it's still about a five hour drive. My memory of I think it was North Carolina, or maybe it was South Carolina. But I remember going out to get like some shoes either sold or seen to or something like that. And there was like um, there was segregation on, on the on the street, if I remember correctly. I don't know mm. where I, I would be, but I'd never really seen that before. You know, that we were kind of aware there was the black community and the white community. Yeah. Um, so it, this is like the 80s. Um, no, I mean, the Confederate flag was flying in South Carolina until over the state house until I don't know, five years ago or something like that. I mean, it's, you know, it's slow change. Unfortunately. There, there are places in America like Chapel Hill and there, you know, there's, there's small little pockets everywhere that I find fa- fascinating because I think they are like islands in the middle of a very different, um, but I always like to go into places like, Chapel Hill, Athens in Georgia. Yeah. They seem like little islands, little oases in the middle of, of, of the desert. And I found them very uh, stimulating in a good way because mm. you, you always find people there that are really into what they're doing. You know, if I grew up in America, that's where I would have liked to have grown up. In. But So was it the same, Carolina, when you left for to New York, I mean, and came back? I mean, it's changed a lot since that time. You know, it was, um, so I went to college in 85 and then moved back here in 1990. And it was right around the time that we were starting our record label merge and starting our band, Super Chunk. And as much as it is an oasis here and, and a cool music scene and everything, I mean, going to New York was really the dream in terms of right. record stores and seeing bands and like, you know, just kind of really being in the heart of the culture. Um, but I, I feel like, you know, by the time I finished school, of course, I thought like, well, what on earth job could I have that would allow me to afford to live in New York City? None. I, you know what I mean? I'm not qualified to do anything that's, you know, being in a band, the idea of being in a band in New York was almost just like, how does anyone do that? Whereas being in a band here in North Carolina, I mean, you can practice in your living room, rent is cheap. You know, it was kind of like... The, the sacrifice that you make for not being in the heart of it all is that you can kind of afford to yeah. have a have a nice life while you're making art, you know, which is which is pretty tough in the city, I think. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. What pulled you up to New York? What what were you studying up in New York? Um, I was I was a I was a history major in college. I mean, I think that really it was the city that that drew me more than what I what I wanted to study, you know. Mm. And um, I mean, New York City in the mid eighties is pretty, pretty fascinating place to be. And, uh, um, I'm really glad that I, that I had that time there, you know, was it being cleaned up? It was that bit pre kind of time. It was pre Julie. It was pre Giuliani. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I'm sure the people who lived there in the seventies were like, Oh, it's so much cleaner now than it was then, you know? (laughs) Um, but, but it was still, pretty pretty gritty especially on lower east side and those kinds of places where of course that's where mm. clubs clubs were that you wanted to go to and that kind of thing yeah but it was it was a it was an awesome awesome place to be and and great coming back here and knowing that like okay that's there yeah can drive there in eight hours fly there in an hour you know what i mean and go right. there anytime and then once we started touring we were there quite quite a bit you know but right. always coming home to a place where you have a little bit of space and 
mm. trees and you know that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, right. you, you, you have yeah. to put like your New York armor on. You're kind of I'll switch <laughs> switch your head a little bit, you know. A, a, a little bit. I'm a, I'm quite a fast walker. Oh, good. Um, yeah. Yes. I think that, serves serves you well in in New York. You know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The first time I ever went to New York, I was 21. And I walked all over town, you know, because that's that's what I did. And, yeah. you know, I'd get to certain areas and I'd realize, hmm, there's a lot of graffiti going on here. There's a lot of other stuff going on here. Maybe it's not. But I think because I walked fast and, and I didn't look like I didn't know where the hell I was. So I didn't look scared. You know, nothing happened to me. I was fine, right. you know, and I would, t- I would tell native New Yorkers after, oh, wh- where have you been? I went here today and that, and they'd, their jaws would drop. They'd be like, oh, my God. You yeah, I was over on Avenue C just r- strolling yeah. around, <laughs> you yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> so I think sometimes to be unaware is probably, you know, very useful. What I wanted to know is you're growing up in the place that is is you know bucolic and stuff and you're you're doing music that is quite challenging in some ways you know for people who've been used to listening to you know whatever southern rock they were listening to back sure. then you know so I, I talked to, to younger people like you know millennials and when you say punk rock they they think of a style of music they don't think of like what the attitude was and how the the culture was around it like to me mm-hmm. you know people will say well what was the the cure and i, I said well we, we were a psychedelic punk band is what we really were because we had that that attitude which yeah. came from you know the, the the tough times at the end of the 70s didn't mean we had to sound like you know you know, UK subs or whoever. Oh, right. we, we stand, yeah. we, but you uh, had your moments, we, didn't you, Log? You we had your moments, yeah, 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 we did. Yeah. We did. Yeah. But you know, it was it was it was the attitude and the way of being that was more important than anything else. So I'm wondering how was your experience growing up there in in you know, like in your teenagers in Chapel Hill and you're playing this this music that's not you know, it it's it's got a different kind of edge. I mean, was it yeah. harder or was it easier? One thing I think is different about growing up in the States in the 70s versus maybe in England was what the radio was like here, like commercial rock radio is just like such a pervasive force here. But in the 70s, it was not playlisted in the way that it is now where town to town, everyone's playing the exact same thing. But you would also get that same DJ playing maybe the clash or Nick Lowe or adding some kind of like new wave things in there. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but being raised on the radio like that in the States, especially in South Florida, when we moved here, they had college radio and that was a whole other thing, but commercial radio was this pervasive thing. And I loved it. So when we moved here and I'd started listening to college radio and hearing punk and new wave and post-punk, it was like, we wanted to hear everything that was different to what we had grown up listening to. And to us, not that it was all the same musically, but it, as long as it was different, we were open to it. In other words, we didn't have the luxury of, well, I only listened to punk or like, I only listened to, to this kind of music. Right. We just wanted to hear everything that was new sounding to us. So, right. you know, whether it was 
The Cure or a local hardcore band, you know, we we were open to all that, you know. Um, I mean, in the South, REM was huge because right. they were from the South right. and they were cool, which is like a rare, you know, that was like a rare thing <laughs> yeah. at the time. Right. You know? And so we, we wanted to hear all that. And so we would try to go see bands. I mean, we weren't old enough to go to clubs, but hardcore bands and punk bands would play all ages shows. So we could go, we could go right. to those, you know, right. and if a band was big enough and they're playing a theater, we could do that, you know, or we could drive to, to DC and see, you know. Susie or New Order or, you know, the bands that were big enough to play these things that you didn't have to be of drinking age to get in. And we just were hungry for all of that, especially, and and in some ways, like the more foreign to what we knew, the better. Like, you know, like if you could find copies of the enemy, a melody maker in North Carolina, you were just like, Oh my God. (laughs) So, so if if you did find yourself in a city, you were like going to record stores trying to just, accumulate that stuff to read about you know like what's going on in other places you know what i mean so i feel like in some ways being isolated made us more open to listening to all kinds of stuff that we could hear as long as it was new and and interesting you know of course coming out of that guitar music radio tradition of just loving like the who or acdc or whatever i was drawn to guitar music and like you know so in some ways the the first cure record was so kind of punky sounding to us like that was my my first favorite thing and and the concert tape i had like a cassette of the cure concert it's like very like much more aggro you know than like than the record that followed immediately after yeah so that was like a good gateway if you were like into guitar music already you know It, it was a i feel like in some ways as opposed to if you grew up in LA or New York, you kind of treasured the things that you could find. Yeah. Like if an import came into the local record store and you got that one copy of the Cure record or whatever, mm. you'd be like, yes. And so like, you know, your friends would come over to listen to it or you'd go to their house cause they got the copy, you know, like that kind of thing. Things happen very quickly in Britain. Yeah. So say between mm. the album that I wasn't involved with, the first, say, Susie album or the first Cure album, right. to the change from that to the second album, that by the time that first album had got to America, it's it, in Britain, it's, it's gone. You've been out there touring it and you've moved on. Yeah. But things in, things in Britain, our little pop music world, changed very rapidly punk had pretty much been killed off mm. by the time you know we got to la and people were meeting us with bin liners and safety pins through the bin liners yeah. that they, were, they were dressed in you know <laughs> yeah it, you know that was you're absolutely right actually that was my first impression when i think on our on our second trip to the states it takes a long time i think for most english people to get the size of America mm. got on the yeah. the highway, the 10 that goes from one side to the other of the country. And we're driving through Texas. And I kept looking out the window and thinking to myself, okay, there's a hill there. There's got to be a town over that hill. Four hours later, we get to the hill. There's no town. There's nothing, <laughs> you know. And yeah. three days later, you're still driving through Texas, you know. Yeah. And, and so 
you know, you can't... I always tell people, well, you know, yeah, British Isles is about the size of California, you know, so, so everything, like Budgie says, happens very quickly, very fast. I mean, I can look at the charts in England now and not know a single person that's on there. And that's not just because, you know, I'm an old guy now. It's like, because it happened so fast. I mean, I think, you know, even if you were cognizant of what's going on, you have to be on a, like a, a daily basis. And that was really the saving grace for us coming here because college radio and playing colleges made the cure, you know, in America. Yeah. What, what, what was it like when you went out, Mac, when, when Superchunk, when you start, when you kicked him off, when you came back from college and, I, I, you know, call it, I mean, again, college radio is just that being a free form thing where you can get your song heard by the same people that you want to come see you play and buy your records is like amazing for us. And so, yeah, I mean, we just started touring all the time. Many shows in college towns now in Iowa city, uh, we, we'd be playing, um, place called Gabe's Oasis, for instance, which I think is in Iowa City, which is like a just this classic club, which was also known to have one of the worst load-ins of any venue in America. <laughs> up these metal stairs in the back, like two two floors up, and it's so cold there much of the year that it's they're often icy metal stairs. Um, oh but God. you know, those are the kind of I things mean, that like we could I just remember. pause though and go like load in. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah, the word brought terror to you, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you were driving to the place, going, "Oh God, that's the place with the loading." With right? the stairs, yeah. yeah. Pray, pray that you weren't the specials with a beat three or something to cut up the stairs. Oh my gosh, yeah. Things, yeah, yeah. When the gigs four floors up and there's no le- elevator, as you know, well, right? But yeah, so I mean, you know, we just to, to us, I mean, just the idea of being in a band that could even make it around the whole country with a show in all the places we wanted to play and sleeping on people's floors. And, and that whole thing was that, that was the dream, you know? So when did you first get to, to Britain then? Cause that's the opposite. You did it the other way around. Yeah. So you came our, from the land of milk and honey to the, to the deprived. Right. Well, and we, and we, and we quickly learned how fast things do move there because when we first came over there and, and toured in Europe and the UK, was um 91 i mean this tells you what the what the atmosphere was like we were on the cover of the nme and the photographer wanted us to wave an american flag and the (laughs) the headline on the cover ended up being the yanks are coming so this was kind of like the nirvana like that like that era you know what i mean and so we happened i mean you know, we benefited from it because a lot of people came to see us play at Yulu the first time we headlined there, you know what I mean? But um, you could tell that the next time we came back, it was not going to be the same uh, the same vibe, right? So I think our very first show in England was at the Old Trout in Windsor. <laughs> oh, oh, dear me. I know it well. As like a warm-up for playing, warm-up for playing a, a show in 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 London at the Camden Underworld or something like that. Yeah. What a brilliant um, day. Is that got to be a pub, hasn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's yeah. a pub. The old trout. The old yeah. trout. Yeah. Oh, um, and so, you know, like I said, like we were just like happy to be there, you know, just looking around, just going like, oh You're my God. You're in Windsor. Like, it's like the Queen Mums there, right? Yeah. <laughs> like you could just walk down the street to the, the castle is just up the street, you know, walk around right. it. 
right. so it was all new and 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 fun to us and uh there was a fervor for american indie bands at that time and then right. you know the fervor never lasts so uh you kind of feel like you're fighting a slight uphill battle the rest the rest of the way you know the next yeah. time you come back I mean, that was, you, you hit a really good point there, Mac. That that was the reason that The Cure kind of left England, you know, because we were so aware, having having grown up there, you know, and reading the Melody Maker and stuff, we, we were so aware that, you know, you have like six months, right, that you're going to be on the covers of, you know, The Enemy and The Melody Maker, and then six months later, they're going to hate you, you know, or you did something wrong, you know, that wasn't, wasn't in their plan for you, you know, or you made an album that they didn't like, you know, and uh, then you're gone. And so we decided, well, forget that. We're just going to go out and and play other places because there's mm-hmm. got to be other people that like us other places. So we went to mainland Europe first. In England, it was down down to who was working at the enemy and the sounds and melody maker. Yeah. So yeah, if, exactly. you, if you knew the photographer or the journalist, yeah. But the turnover of like the editors and the staff was so quick yeah. as well oh. that they're just like, no, no, we had you last year or something. Yeah, yeah, and it just—it's just—it's a terrible churning of of uh, fashion, really, you know. And it doesn't really rely on what's actually really going on. So we went to mainland Europe, and then we came over to America, and we we started just you know going round round and. Then this weird thing happens. You come back like five years later and start to play, you know, uh, do something more in England. And suddenly, you know, oh, well, we always liked you. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're so, so we'll put you back on the cover and stuff. And so I, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that sounds like something the, uh, something the London taxi driver would say to you when you got back to yeah. London, if that's where you were based. And you're like, yeah. ah, so you're in a band. And you're like, yeah. what, you still, you guys still going? <laughs> I, I will say that 90% of the time, I think that the internet ruined everything. But one thing that I feel like has been good is that for those people that just heard your records, English fans I'm talking about now, right. and like the records the whole time, who are just trying to kind of ignore the noise of the, the press and the churn of the, the cycle and everything, being able to to find them now and reach them and let them know what's going on is great because we can come to London and have a great show and we're not worried about, are we going to be covered in this magazine or that magazine or whatever, you know what I mean? And so that is kind of a, an interesting turn that maybe happened in in the two thousands that we just felt like, well, we can just go there and have a great show and not, we're not trying to be on the cover of anything. We're just finding our fans, you know? think that one thing I think that makes post-punk so interesting and maybe long-lasting and resonant is that the rules, as it were, even though when I was that age, I thought of it as kind of part of punk, you know, like I was just into stuff that was new and punky, whether that was you guys or actual, you know, slaughtering the dogs or something like that. But in retrospect, I feel like really post-punk was kind of throwing out the rules of punk. And so Everything could really, you know, it was more like carving all these way more interesting paths. And, you know, Budgie, you played on that Slits record. And I was just thinking of the Slits. And, and to yeah. me, like, that's one of the most, it's one of the best albums of the era or of any era. 
and so different. And I was wondering what the reception <laughs> to that was like, considering what else was going on at that time musically. I'd, I'd seen the slits before I'd, I, I joined up with them. Um, supporting Susie and the Banshees, mm-hmm. crazy, and so I was like hanging out with Ariana and Palm Olive, who I knew before, um, you know, stepping into her, her drum boots. Um, so, uh, so I'm stood with the slits while they're having a fight, you know, mm-hmm. on the floor because fighting was like sort of the thing they did, and they they would just, you know, I'd see them perform, and you know. Palmolive would stop playing. Ariana would swing around and go, don't stop again. And she'd go, you make me have a fisty cuffs, kick the kit off, put it back together again, and then just carry on playing. Oh, my gosh. And this was like even outside of the realms of what, you know, punk was, you know, apparently was. They were kind of on the edge of some other world anyway, for like these four right. girls. And-, and was the crowd open to the slits? They well, uh, if they were, Ariana would make sure that they were not. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever, yeah, whatever they like, she would she would not do it again. It you know, if they actually, yeah. she was just going to challenge them. Yeah, she was like this was like her game, and just kind of the rules were off. There was just no rules about what you should be like as a, as a young girl at that point. Yeah, and I knew what my role was on that record. My role on that record was to give them a beat that was consistent. Mm. I was so I could bring to the table my let's see, I was into reggae when I was a kid at school because there was a lot of Jamaicans in Britain. Um, the music came in um, through the ports like Liverpool and then places like Eric's fed us it. But, but I loved the sound of the drums and the saxophone and this beat that was like delicate and yet so groovy dance wise. Mm. And and, that, and this was like magic music, to, and but where, Mark, you said it. You wanted to encompass all music was like, like up for grabs, and it, and it was all filtering in. And maybe that's something to do with that outsider thing. Right. For for my high school band, which you know we were just playing at parties mainly. Yeah. We saw, Urga Music War, was like played in the like a midnight show in a theater over here and you could buy that soundtrack. And so we covered like five songs that were just from that soundtrack alone. We did an echo. We did the puppet by echo and the bunny men. Like we learned <laughs> a song by Atletico Spiz 80. We're like, this is great source wow. material here. You know what I mean? And so, you know, it's just like, you're just absorbing everything and then putting it back out. But then when you start writing songs, of course, it's never going to sound like those songs, all the influence is there, but then hopefully, yeah. It's your yeah. own voice, for better or worse. Well, that that's the other thing about being that. That's the important point about being like that. You're in Chapel Hill, and you're allowed to, you know, grow without too much. Inf- you know, the, the trouble yeah. for us would have been if if we were based in London, we'd be like, you know, down the pub with with Joe and thinking, well, what what are you going to do next? How are you going to do next? Yeah. And we'd be following all that stuff. You know, it wasn't was an ideal place we were allowed to sort of like be out in the sticks and and just get on with our own stuff you know it worked much better that way i think yeah before anyone else ever hears it you're already kind of like arriving at a at a a path you know i think that the 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 people who stay with their own character and and continue down the thing that hasn't been done before is 
retains their interest the longest because you can't substitute anything else for it. You know? No, you right. can't. If you want to hear the Banshees or the Cure, like you have to listen to those records because no one could do that. No one else was doing that, or I mean, it wouldn't be pointless to try. Yeah, I mean, it has to be your own person. For that was the revelation to us when we started playing is that you know we could for the first three years we didn't play any gigs. We were like stuck at Robert's house just playing our songs, learning how to play our own songs. You know, forget anybody else's songs. We were kind of learning to play our own songs. So when we came out, people would think, well, you know, they can play, but we can only really play our stuff. You know, if, if, you, if you'd asked us, like, you know, maybe we could play Johnny Be Good or something, but, you know, if you asked us to play anything else, we'd be like, uh, no, no, can't do that. Yeah. When, when this kind of, when we started listening to these post-punk bands and we were in junior high and high school, you know, I feel like there's a reaction from traditional rock people to the technology, synthesizers, things like that. And when I hear certain synthesizer sounds now, I have like an emotional reaction yeah. to this very technology it's just a piece of technology it's a computer chip that makes the sound but right. because i heard this music at a certain age yeah i like i literally like have like an emotional reaction to certain oh my goodness synthesizer sounds you know of course you have a reaction to songs that you loved and that kind of thing but even just and i and i feel like part of it was just a great timing of new technology that people hadn't mastered yet yes so it's like people are doing way more interesting things with it than once they figured out, oh, I can use a fair light to do all this. You know what I mean? It's more just like, what's the first thing that you figure out how to do with a new keyboard? Like that's going to be the weird kind of wonky yeah. thing yeah. to create something <laughs> unique. You know what I mean? And I love that about that era. We, we grew up on the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Mm. Yeah. With all that, those sounds, had. I had the whole CD collection of all their, um, mm. you know, sound effects. But you, know, oh, wow. you, you were making me laugh when you were saying that, Mac, because I was thinking about the first time we 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 rented, you know, like from Julian's or wherever, you know, Sinclavia, you know, mm. and try to figure out how the damn thing worked, you know. <laughs> right. And actually, the walk, the walk, you know, we we got like the Oberheim system with like, okay, here's the here's the sequencer, here's the drum machine, here's the keyboard. And I'm looking through the, the this machine, and I'm like an enraged monkey, you know, like pushing buttons and that. that, that. Why doesn't it start at the right time? Nothing started at the right time. In fact, the beginning of the, the walk, because it, it sort of triggered that note off. Right. We thought, we'll just keep it. It works. So we'll keep it. Yeah. But um, Steve turned around to me as I spent an afternoon trying to figure out what the hell's going on. He, he said, Do you, you know what that needs, uh, Lol? And I go, what, is, what does it need, Steve? He, he goes, uh, RFM. I go, Steve, what's RFM? He goes, read the fucking manual. So, you know. I, I I had a, a record called A Lollipop for Papa. It was a little 45. It was a freebie from somebody, like a company called 3M. Oh, they yes. make tape. And, yeah, right. it made magnetic tape. And it was, um, it was a, a song that composed by Peter Zinoviev. 
Zinoviev, mm. and he was a pioneer of the synthesizer. And on the B side of that was just like one note going beep. And when you put it on your deck, by oscillating between 78, 33, and 45, you could alter the pitch of this note. And that was my first. Wow, that's so weird. What a weird thing to put on the record. Just yeah. one note. And I thought it was brilliant because it went on for ages. So you wouldn't run out. You could actually play around with it. <laughs> but it was very, like, daft and stupid. But um, <laughs> then if I heard a synthesizer, just any synthesizer, like Chicory Tip, Son of My Father, oh, yeah. was in the British oh, yeah. charts. Yeah. Awful, awful music. But it had a synthesizer. I had to go and buy it. Yeah. I wanted <laughs> I, any, anything with synthesizer. I, I just, it was like I, it was like collecting it. Did you have crazy horses? Yeah, the Osmonds. Did I was that? so so annoyed with the you know the, the what they call not the um the the, the Osmonds because I knew it was all yeah. glitz and <laughs> they all dressed as Elvis, didn't they? Crazy yeah, horses. Yeah. Yeah. But like thought they got they've got one of those. They've got one of those machines that makes that noise. I could I could care less about the, them trying to be Led Zeppelin, you know. It was like a, a Moog ribbon controller or something, wasn't it? Uh, they, yeah. they, they would go. Uh, so that's why you know, like when, when I heard like Emma Slick and Palmer, and not not the first album yeah. when they were still jazzy and they'd just come out of being nice. I loved Atomic Rooster and because they were kind of a bit not like dirty or something. Yeah, but it was really like looking for sound effects, like the bell at the beginning of Black Sabbath first mm. album. You know, it's like. This was kind of scary stuff, you know. I could put turn the lights out in the house. My parents had gone out. My brother and sister had gone out. I got a bottle of cider stashed away behind the couch. And uh, I just scared myself <laughs> crap out of myself. Listen to Black Sabbath going, what is this that stands before me? You know. <laughs> and then, and suddenly the lights had gone, and I realized I was probably half cut, you know, because I'd had like a bottle of woodpecker as well, or maybe two by oh, that dear. point. <clears throat> and they go like, "All right, we're home." And they go like, oh, "I'm like broken the spell," and because uh, <laughs> no bands came to the town, no bands came to my town, and I couldn't I get to Liverpool. That was the nearest city, so his concerts were in my my room. You know? Right? Yeah. You you were lucky because my my experience of that was I was the DJ at school uh, Friday lunchtimes, and I would play all those kind of records you know especially the one with you know that weird thing whizzing round on the on the label but you know vertigo yeah but it's like you know it's the middle of the day and we're in some hut on the edge of the playground you know and they're playing that and everybody's going why are you playing that stuff why don't you put this on you know so it was tough crowd it was not quite the same yeah yeah, (laughs) wait until later yeah very tough crowd yeah they weren't impressed with my choices. Well, oh my goodness. When when we started Super Chunk, I feel I felt like and I still feel like we were just a product of all the bands that we were fans of up to that point. And uh I still kind of feel that way, but I, I appreciate you guys for having these bands that I felt like really were cutting a a, a unique a unique swath uh with what you guys are what you guys were doing. Wow. Well, thank you. Yeah, now you can't see because this is, uh, you know, the podcast, but I'm turning bright red now. Okay. <laughs> we, we 
haven't broached two main things here. There's, there's, you have a new album out, which I've listened to. Oh, thank you. And and you run your own record label, which is, you know, an amazing thing to do as well. Yeah, we started Merge. We started the label in '89, same time we started the band. And um, yeah, we're still running the label, and you know, the band we don't tour half the year like we used to in the 90s of course but um but we made a record during lockdown um with my studio here in the house because that was just the only way to do it and uh, it just came out i'm glad that it's it's out in the world um and yeah this the, the record's called um wild loneliness which uh i think captures one of the moods that we are all experiencing over the last couple couple years well, it's one of the things that, I, that's, that was my thought process talking to you about, like being in a place like Chapel Hill, bucolic and nice, and then playing music that's a bit more, you know, challenging than, than you know, before. It's like, I like the title because it was putting those two things together that were not necessarily, um, you know, mm-hmm. obvious. Yeah, I, I think that... Um... Over the, uh, the politics that we all know have been going on in this country the last few years, yeah. our last album kind of addressed that and very angry and I feel like we probably still feel that anger every day to some extent, but it's hard to sustain that right. as an energy for making art. Mm. And so the new record I think was, was more about like, well, you know, m- maybe trying to look around for the things that we have to be thankful for and to be feel positive about even in the face of all the horrible shit that's going on every day. Yeah. There's so much to be be thankful for and grateful for, and that doesn't mean that you have to put up with the stuff that's wrong, but it means, you know, you also have to live, um, live life, right? Yeah. And be aware. But that's what makes the music and everything else and art and everything else so important because this is what gives us, you know, the relief from this insanity, you know? Well, thanks for having me, you guys. I really appreciate the talk. Thank you. It's great to meet you. Yes, thanks, Mac. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed this talk. Lola's actually got a big board. It looks like a cricket um, yeah. scoreboard. I reckon there's a little man in there who's like turning the the, the questions over so you can read them. <laughs> no, okay. Paul Richardson, and he is from Northern California, says, hi, my name is Paul Richardson and I'm from Northern California. I just, so that's how I know he's from Northern California. Is that um, Paul Richardson from Northern California? I think it is the same one. Goodness yes. me. You have both worked with many colourful, exciting and talented people over the years. Is there one that stands out as making the biggest impact on you, even if it was difficult at the time? Thanks. Colourful colorful people we have worked with. Um, probably the first ones. They were, they were the toughest. Because certainly in Liverpool, there were just a lot of pretty crazy colourful people. I, I mean, both singers in my first band, 
the Spitfire Boys and the second yeah. band I was in Big in Japan. Yeah. The singers were both, I mean, they knew each other, Paul and Jane. Right. But they were just like the, the kind of, the, the best looking or the craziest or the most outlandish, outrageous people in town. Right. So he thought, well, they've got to be the singer in the band. Can they sing? Who cares? Oh, that's and, um, good. What else? <laughs> well, I, I was thinking, I was, you know. Oh, yes. The second half of the question was, were they, was it difficult? Yes. It yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. Because everybody wants to be the best they can. Yeah. And we're all super critical of each other and ourselves. Right. So I wanted to be the best drummer and, you know, and yeah. Jay wanted to be the best singer and dancer. And it was all really hard. Yeah. But I think that's a good thing in a way because you you end up pulling each other up, you know. Definitely. I, th- I think yeah. the worst thing is to pull each other down, which you know oh. has to be said happens from time to yeah. time. But to pull did, each did other you have up any to, any of those moments? Yeah, I've, I've had a few of those moments, but you know, I prefer to stick them in a little box at the back and you know throw them in the river. Um, I think one of the people I worked with who was the most uh, Difficult? No, not difficult. This is uh-huh. this is like a nice story. This is oh, good. <laughs> the <laughs> most be difficult, difficult and, and still be nice. The most difficult. I've got a big story. Well, uh, Billy McKenzie from the Associates. I went on tour with him because we did yeah. a tour together, and yeah. I spent a lot of time with Billy over the years. And uh, he was one of the nicest men I ever knew, and, and yeah. he was one of the most talented men I ever knew. I mean, wonderful voice, wonderful voice, absolutely awesome, uh, you know, to sing, um, wonderful laughing as well. Yeah. Yeah. And he was just like a really good guy. And I, I loved Billy. He was a lovely man. Um, he was not what I would call difficult. He was so eccentric. He probably made things difficult for people that had to work with him, you know, because he, he would hire an orchestra on a whim and then decide they were wearing the wrong shoes mm. and, you know, so wouldn't be uh, involved with them anymore. And, you know, just things like that. That was Billy. You know, it wasn't his 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 mode was uh, to live it like he walked it and talked it. I mean, he was the real deal. But uh, so that could make it, you know, most <laughs> most musicians don't fit into easily, you know, successful musicians anyway, don't fit into easy, uh, manageable packages, you know. I mean, I'm sure we know that, having worked with singers, that none of them fit into little managed packages. But um, Billy wasn't difficult. No, he, he was he was eccentric, I would say. So he was an eccentric, mm. lovely person. And uh, talking of it, talk, talking of eccentrics. Yeah, I see. It's hard when you talk about the bands you've been in for a long time, is it? So these incidents or these people maybe are the ones that just pop up. Yeah, and um, one that popped up on me was uh, Thomas Dolby. Um, I don't know. It was about no, no. Well, we met at one of those studios in London. Yeah, and he was doing a new album, and we he wanted me to play drums on a track called "Close but No Cigar." Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great title and we had we had a great title we had very little time to rehearse and so i my kit was already in the rehearsal room probably because we were mid record uh, writing or rehearsing session yeah. with the banshees uh so thomas set up his gear and was conducting me from a chair across the other side of the studio sort of conducting like and he reminded right. me of the chap he got to 
guest on one of his previous singles, which was "She Blinded Me with Science." Oh, um, the Pike, Magnus Pike, Magnus Pike. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> so he, Thomas he... looked. Perhaps he was Magnus Pike. Perhaps he was. Magnus I think he Pike, might have really. been incarnate. Yeah. Oh. He, he, he certainly did a great impression of Magnus Pike, um, <laughs> waving his arms around and like because this was like ah, symbols here. Oh my God. I mean, yeah. The arms are going, right. and um, no idea what what this was going to sound like. I think I may have heard the track maybe twice yeah. afterwards, but the experience was like frenetic and crazy. Uh, There've been a, f- a few of those things, but um, that one just jumped out from nowhere. So thanks for reminding me of uh, Thomas mm. Dolby. Yeah, yeah. lovely man. Um, here, here we have a question. Hi, Lol and Budgie. Hi, that would be us. Uh-huh. Uh, I have a question for Budgie. Mm-hmm, that's me. My friends and I are debating about a sound in Candyman. About two minutes in. There's what sounds to me like a motorcycle revving in its engine, but my friends swear it's part of the vocal track. Could you help me settle this heated debate? Really enjoying the podcast, and cheers, Bradford Craig. What? Um, what? Yeah. A motorcycle revving? I know it's not. No. So so what might it be? He says, oh, P.S., I have a Susie Nabanchi's cover band in the works in Los Angeles, and it's one of the most fun things I've ever done. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because it, 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 it's also the most fun thing I've ever done as well. Um, <laughs> Candyman. Um, yes. Um, Susie was still recovering from um, the dislocated knee. Certainly when we did the video for that, uh, that particular song, you realize that she's quite stationary in that video. Right. The camera does all the moving. Right. Um, and she was not able to. How, how did she dislocate her knee? On stage at the Hammersmith Odeon, as it used to be, Labat's Apollo. Um, if is I, that what it's called now? I think it is. Yes, Labatt. Oh, my God. <laughs> Some I, it must have been a million years ago that I bit Labat's. That's Canadian. And, it uh, is, isn't we've it? Just, yeah. We've just advertised for them, so now perhaps they'd like to send us a yeah, check. Well, just, um, we, yeah, well, you know where we are. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were pretty much uh, b- the beginning of the first night with two shows there. I think it was two. Yeah. And um, there was a, a loud clunk as a microphone hit the deck and, and Susie with it. And we just oh. wondered, you know, what on earth? Thought she'd been shot, you know. It was like kind of first, you know, first impression. You have no idea. Just And then we kind of ground to a halt quickly when we realized she wasn't going to get up. Wow. And how, how come I didn't know that? Wow. I have no idea. But but she got a foot tangled up in either the lead, or she she did a quick turn, but the foot didn't turn. The body weight turned the leg, no, and no. the kneecap, the patella, dislocated, popped, just dis, discombobulated. Oof. They Oof. they pushed a little old budgie out onto the stage as I came off stage, going like, you know, what's going on? What we're going to do? Because drummers are always the last to realise. Right, right. She's screaming, you know, punch me out, anybody, please. And um, of course, she can't do that, and nobody could, nobody could slap it back in place either. Because uh, St John's Ambulance, our Ooh. the faithful, wouldn't allow that. I had to go out to the uh, the crowd and say something like. Uh, so really sorry, everybody, but that's all for this evening. Susie just went with it, something like that. 
Um, yeah, wow. And they were very good, and they just, you know, sort of clapped. I think everybody clapped. That was very respectful, and they left. And the next night, Madam Susie was uh, um, chaperoned onto the stage by two of the crew dressed in full skeleton costumes. <laughs> and there was a stool sitting right out front in front of the microphone stand and she walked home with the aid of a walking cane with a skull head yeah. on it and right. uh, proceeded to sing the do the the, ne- the rest and next of the shows stationary in the middle of the the uh, stage unbeknown yeah wow. yeah very brave it's a long story and I have, wow. no, I have no idea what the answer is to the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe we could say because, you know, uh, maybe it was a motorcycle revving up outside of Hammersmith Odin, but yeah, like it, magically it, transported it, it to the studio. in time to when we were recording the song that we don't, yeah, I wonder what it yeah. was. <laughs> I'm trying to think what, what it is at the beginning of Candyman. No, 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 no. I'm just. I'm going faster. You're running it at twice the speed. Okay. Yeah. No, I can't think of anything that sounds like an engine revving. I I have a I have a, a, a an answer to this question because people ask similar questions of Cure songs. Mm. Sometimes when you have several sounds layered over each other, mm. you know they can sound like things in your mind that they really aren't you know like people people always thought there was uh like on the caterpillar they thought there was uh some some butterfly wings beating in it or something and that and it was actually andy playing his uh leather pants yeah exactly yeah like that so um you know and and then people make sounds in the studio uh, <laughs> you know that happens from time to time and if they don't all get caught or you know by the compressors or whatever mm. and that's some, that, you know and things can layer on top of each other and make something that you never thought was there at all it's like that thing where people go yes if you play the record backwards you could hear their chanting to satan which is um, there's an old english word for that bollocks uh-huh. you know because <laughs> It's, a good old um, um, yeah. Charles Dickens word. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, which, you know, means nonsense. And, and fart. Fart would and be fart. another one. Yeah, yeah, it would. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com. Or follow at Double Elvis on Instagram or at Double Elvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.